It is good to be back again with you guys. Happy New Year. Happy uh, 2018. Um, if this is your first time or first time a little while around here, we're going to be uh, continuing with this series we started back in the fall called The Big Story, which is exactly that. We're going through the big story of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, all the major themes and stories that tie the one story um, of Scripture all together. Uh, I also want to take this moment to remind you of something and to re- kind of call us back to something we started in the fall called our soap devotions. And so recognizing this is a brand new year, uh, many of us have made a lot of resolutions for what that may mean in our life in 2018. I want to remind us that this is a resource that we put together uh, at the beginning of the fall to help you connect with the Lord on a daily basis. Uh, and so it's easy to sign up for. You can go to our website, top right corner. Uh, what is soap? You can click on that. It'll take you here and you can immediately just subscribe. It's a blog essentially every single day, five or five days a week, evidently, Monday through Friday. Uh, you're going to get a text, a, a passage of scripture that's going to be sent to you in your email inbox. Um, and it's going to correspond with what we're preaching through that upcoming Sunday. It's a way for you to stay connected. Uh, soap is an, an acronym that simply stands for scripture, observation, application, and prayer. And so this is a resource to help you study God's word for yourself. So every day you're going to get that passage. And the hope is that you would prayerfully read that scripture. Then you would make 10 observations. Oh, then you would make, write out a few applications. Personally, what, what is God saying to you right here through this text? And then the, that you would be able to write out your prayer. And of course, the goal in this whole thing that we launched back in fall, and I don't want us to lose sight of this, is that we would be a people that know how to connect with the Lord Jesus Christ on a daily basis through his word in such a way that leads to spirit-filled worship, spirit-filled transformation, and then spirit-filled mission intentionality into your life. It is not a desire to simply just know God's word better and to know certain fun facts about him, but that it would lead to all of those different things. So if you've not had a chance to sign up for that yet, I really hope that you do. I know about 80% of you already have. But again, a number of you may be new uh, or wanting to start things off right uh, in 2018, so there's that opportunity. Hope you guys can go ahead and get signed up today. Uh, So with that, we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 1 this morning. Uh, I've titled, you can go ahead and turn there if you'd like to, I've titled this this sermon this morning, uh, No Excuses. Okay, No Excuses, pretty, uh, I feel like a, a CrossFit trainer or something like right now, but um, no excuse. I feel like it's pretty relevant given that it's uh, 2018. We've got about seven days into the brand new year, which means uh, we've got about seven days of uh, practice making excuses, right? Like how many, be honest, I mean, you woke up Monday, it's 18 degrees outside and you're like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll start the resolution thing tomorrow, God, right? I mean, you, you, you woke up and you're like, okay, uh, I, I've got, I can't do it. Clearly you didn't mean for me to get in shape this year if it's 18 degrees outside. So uh, like you've got the excuses down, right? And so I feel like we've got a little bit of practice going that direction. Um, I took to the, uh, the interweb this past week, uh, Twitterverse, and um, was checking out some of the top resolutions for 2018. And not surprising, they're actually the exact same things that they were in 2017 and 2016. Uh, can any of you guys guess what the, the number one resolution of 2018 actually is? Get in shape, right? Yeah, like you didn't even have to like think about that. What is get in shape? Um, fun fact, I read an interesting article this past week on Gold's Gym says that they get about 40% of their memberships uh, all in December and January uh, for the entire year. And so like, that's, a, that's, what's ha- that's how big of a deal this is. Everybody wants to get in shape, and 2018 is going to be the year that we get healthy and things like that. Not surprisingly, like Nike and Lululemon and things like that, they're doing the exact same thing. They're seeing all these spikes in sales and stuff. Uh, at the beginning of every year, because we make these resolutions, and we say, this is the year that things are going to get healthy, and things are going to go well for me. 
Uh, we, we made a lot of other ones too, um, simple ones like I wanted, this is going to be the year I want to spend less and save more, right? That was number two, something about savings and, and putting away for retirement or something like that. And uh, others are saying this is the year I want to get organized. Um, what made the top 10 list I thought was interesting, this is the year I want to floss more. Really? <laughs> I never thought about that going into 2018, like this is the year I'm going to get that thing out of my teeth. Right? I just, I, I didn't expect to see that one at all. But there was all kinds of hilarious resolutions I was checking out. Um, Introvert Life was one that tweeted out. I thought this is awesome. They're like, my New Year's resolution is to avoid getting talked to by a stranger while waiting in any kind of line. Right? Like, that is my New Year's resolution. I want to avoid being talked to by any kind of stranger while I'm standing in line. And of course, that's hilarious because, like, all the extroverts are like, okay, my resolution this year is to talk to a brand new stranger every single day of the week. Right? I want to go and engage someone that I do not know and just uh, get to know them and just have a, maybe even have a hug or something like that. And so I thought that was funny. One other kid tweeted in and he said, I resolved this year I'm going to start, stop putting LOL at the end of every one of my text messages and tweets, dot, 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 LOL, right? <laughs> and I think we would all appreciate that one. And so we know about, all about resolutions. We enter the brand new year. And we've got all these things that we want to do. And as believers, we do the exact same thing, Right? As a believer, you come, come into the year, and we've got all kinds of spiritual resolutions that you may or may not be making. Things like, okay, this is going to be the year that I'm actually going to read through the Bible in an entire year. Or this is the year that I'm actually going to join a church membership, and I'm going to be invested in the life of the community of believers here. Or things like, this is the year that I'm going to work on that addiction, and I'm going to surrender it over to the Lord, and I'm going to actually get help for these kinds of things that I've been wanting help with. This is the year that I'm actually going to share my faith. Uh, with my neighbor or my friend that I know that God has put into my life. Like, I know that, that, that God has put those people in my life for a certain purpose and for a certain reason. And I know that, like, this is the year that I'm actually going to share the gospel with them and take friendship evangelism to the evangelism part of that definition, right? Or I know that this is going to be the year that um, I'm actually going to go to a marriage conference or a counselor. I'm going to start working and investing in my marriage for the very first time instead of passively sitting by and, and hoping that things fix itself because that's what love is supposed to do. It should be easy, right, and just come to you or something like that. And so we know all these different things, and what typically happens is we start off really, really strong in the new year, but then come to the excuses for why I don't actually need to be doing the very thing that I know I should be doing. I think it was Ben Franklin who, who famously said, excuses are the tools of the incompetent, and those who specialize in them seldom go far. I feel like we could pray right after that and just end it, right? The reason I go there, um, that is how Jeremiah's story begins. We're going to see here in chapter 1, like God comes to Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, and comes with this mighty, giant, big calling upon his life. And immediately as he responds to this calling, there's going to be all kinds of fear and the excuses are going to flow. So if you have your Bibles, again, to J Jeremiah chapter 1, uh, all I want to do is I want to take you to this chapter. I want to look at the calling of God on his life, on our life, some of the excuses that typically come from it, and then how God intervenes to, to, um, to help us move through those excuses and to walk into uh, the fullness of his calling upon our life. Jeremiah chapter 1, if, you're, if you are joining us, I do want to remind us again where we are in this whole big story. Like about 1,500 years has passed since we started this series. Not the series, but um, actually it seems like that sometimes. But um, <laughs> Um, about 1,500 years since Genesis chapter 12, which is the first major, major covenant um, in Scripture, God's covenant with, with Abraham. He promises Abraham 
that he's going to make him a father of many nations, and he promises him uh, people, land, and blessing. Three components of that promise that's really going to define much of what we see in the rest of the story of Scripture. And so that's going to be happening, and I think I've got a timeline up here for you. You can take a peek at about 2081 is the Abrahamic covenant uh, that God makes with him. And again, he promises Abraham land, people, and blessing. That's going to be the nation of Israel, the land of Israel, the people of Israel. And then there's a promise of blessing that's going to be there. We're going to be in covenant relationship with each other. I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing. And through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. About 600 years later, Moses is going to come on the scene. He's going to make another major covenant. This is going to be a covenant of blessing. Also, that's going to mediate the mission of God going out in the world. Uh, that's going to be the Old Testament law in about 1446. That's going to be Moses leading the Israelites out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt and taking them out of there. Um, he is not going to enter in the promised land. After him comes Joshua. And then about 350 years of rule as they settle into the land uh, by judges. And of course, this is the dark period. This is the one I did one sermon on because everything in judges is just dark and depressing, right? It's just sad and heavy because uh, seven cycles of sin, seven cycles of rebellion and people that do not want to follow God and the judgment that comes upon them during those years. Um, after that, we're going to get into the era of the kings. The first king is going to be King Saul. Uh, the people are going to be begging God for a king. They're going to be looking around saying, hey, God, every other nation on the planet has a king to lead them and rule them. And God's saying, I want to be your king. I should be your king. All you need to do is look at me to be your king. And they're saying, that's not good enough. We need a man to look at. And so he says, okay, fine, I'm going to give you a king, but you're going to have to deal, deal with the consequences of that. Saul is the first one, massive failure. David is the next one that's going to come after that. David is going to have 20 years of success. He's going to reign for 40. So the first 20 are to be full of success. Then comes his sin with Bathsheba. Everything is going to fall apart, and there's going to be a divided kingdom that's going to, not a divided kingdom at that time, but there's going to be a lot of infraction and infighting that's going to take place in the kingdom of God then. Solomon is going to come right after him. 970, Solomon becomes the king. Same kind of a pattern. He's going to rule for 40 years. 931, Solomon dies. And when Solomon dies, the kingdom of Israel is going to be divided. And again, I'm going through this history because this is going to define the story of Scripture. This is going to be key for understanding like, what's happening in the whole story of Scripture. One of the unique things that David was able to do is he was a king that was able to divide, I'm sorry, he was able to unite the 12 tribes of Israel. Very difficult thing to be able to do to unite 12 different tribes. You can picture them as 12 different states or something like that. Not exactly the same thing. But uniting 12 different tribes was very difficult, but it happened under, the, under David's leadership. Um, Solomon comes in because of a, a divided heart within Solomon following all kinds of other gods. When he passes away, the kingdom divides once again. So united Israel now becomes divided Israel. There's a northern kingdom, which is 10 different tribes. And there's going to be a southern kingdom called Judah. The northern kingdom is going to be referred to as uh, Israel, but the southern kingdom is going to be Judah. And that's going to be uh, Judah and Benjamin in the southern kingdom. And so uh, that's going to be taking place there. 739, Isaiah is going to come along, and that's where we've been right before Christmas. Uh, focusing on Isaiah, he's going to receive his call. He's going to be one of the major prophets in the life of Israel. And uh, his job, essentially, is again to be calling to the Israelites to repentance. There's a story of the Old Testament. Israel, would you repent? Come back to the Lord. Stop following all these other gods. Uh, there's massive idolatry taking place at this time. And when I talk about idolatry, I'm not talking about like, hey, um, I love uh, football a little bit too much. I'm talking about like they're, they're, they're building other temples to other gods. They're sacrificing children to false gods. Like that's how wicked and evil and perverse things have become in the nation of Israel. 
And so God keeps warning them. He's very patient, full of grace and mercy. Warning, warning, warning. Return back to God. That's the role of the prophets there. And of course, they don't listen. And so finally, God gets to the point where he brings judgment in a, in a, in a desire to bring people back to repentance. 730, uh, 722, the Assyrians are the dominant power at that time. And God is going to use them to, lead, to take the Israelites into captivity, the northern kingdom of Israel. Okay, there's going to be a few different waves and movements, but it's going to be happening mostly around 722. They're going to be taking the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity, and they're going to be experiencing the judgment of God. 627 is when Jeremiah is going to come on the scene. He's going to be prophet um, in this in-between time. So far, the southern kingdom is untouched. But in 627, Jeremiah is going to be commissioned, and we're going to talk about that here in just a little bit. But again, his role is going to be very similar to Isaiah, call the people to repentance. It doesn't work out very well in the end, 586 B.C., uh, the, Babylonians, the Babylonians are going to take the southern kingdom of Judah into captivity too. So now the northern kingdom is taken into captivity under the judgment of God. The southern kingdom is taken into captivity. Most of them are removed from their land. Uh, things are not going well. And that is the setting. That is where Jeremiah and his story is going to fit into the big story of Scripture. He's got the really fun task of telling a rebellious and hard-hearted nation of Israel that they need to repent from the things that they're doing and return unto God. Otherwise, they're going to fall under the judgment of the mighty hand of God. And that's not exactly a fun message to be preaching all the time. Nevertheless, that's what he's going to do. Here's how his story kicks off in chapter 1. And if you want to follow along with me, you can here. Verse 4, Now the word of the Lord came to me, this is Jeremiah speaking, Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nation. So that's the call of God upon Jeremiah's life. This is a, an enormous calling upon his life. Uh, he's not just going to be a prophet to the nation of Israel, but he says, I've called you to be a, nation, a prophet to the nations, meaning that he's going to be speaking against the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Babylonians, and all kinds of nations that are not as friendly um, and, and, and not as cordial to the things of God as the Israelites are. So this is an enormous calling that God is, is calling him into, which is uh, probably exactly why he starts making all kinds of excuses at this point in time. Check out here how he responds here in verse 6. He says, Then I said, Alas, Lord God, behold, I don't know how to speak because I'm a youth. I mean, in other words, God, I, I, you're calling me to do this? Like, I'm, I'm young. Like, you don't understand this. Like, I'm in junior high. I'm in high school. He's actually probably a young adult, young 20s or something like that. But he's going, who am I, God? Like, why are you calling me to this giant, enormous task? And I love this part of the story. And, and honestly, he's not alone in this whole thing. But I think we can identify uh, with this fear that Jeremiah is going to be feeling here. He's going to be saying, God, who in the world am I? I'm a little too young. I don't even know how to speak. Like, church, honestly, have you been there before? Like, have you ever been so terrified at the, at, at the call of God in your life that it, you're just frozen in fear? Like, we see the exact same thing in, in Moses in, in Exodus chapter 3. We started off this series at the beginning of the fall kind of the same way. But God appears to Moses in a burning bush, um, and he says, I've seen the misery of my people in, in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. But here it is, verse 10. I'm sending you to do it. Like, here's the deal. I've, I've heard the cry of the nation of Israel that's, that's enslaved by the hand of the Egyptians. I've heard them. I've responded to them. I've come to deliver them, but I'm going to do it through you. Moses is not just, like, I'm going to be using human beings for this. So uh, he says, I'm, 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 going to, I'm sending you to Pharaoh in order to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And so Moses is freaking out, and he's going, wait, come again, Lord? Like, you want me to do what? 
I, I, I wanted the deliverance and I wanted the rescue. I wanted to see the mighty hand of God moving in my day and time, but you want me to be a part of this whole thing? And he's freaking out about the entire call. And so he says, Lord, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? In other words, like Pharaoh's kind of a big deal. He's got a temper problem. He wants me dead. Like he's kind of powerful. He, he is the man over here. And like, I don't exactly want anything to do with that kind of call on my life. And on top of that, you want me to lead the Israelites? Like these are the people that have already cast me off because I've deserted them. Like these are the people who don't really trust me a whole lot right now. You want me to lead and to step into this role where people are going to be um, critiquing me all the time? And they're going to be, some of them are going to like me and some of them are not going to like me. And they're going to be talking about me and, and talking about me behind my back. And like, you want me to step into a leadership role? Church, honestly, have you ever been there before? Like so terrified about what God has called you to do that you're frozen in fear. Like, okay, God, you want me to change my career at my age and stage in life? Like, you want me to go work somewhere different and to have a completely different career change right now, God? Seriously? I mean, you want me to love all and not just some? Really? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, okay, God, uh, you want me to write a book and go public with this message that you've given to me? Like, the, the amount of work and the amount of scrutiny? Are you, are you serious? You, you want me to do that? Or you want me to take this season of life and I completely change all of the norms inside of my family so that I can reinvest in my family again for the first time in my life? Uh, you want me to go to counseling and you want me to humble myself? You want me to do these kinds of things? Are you serious? I mean, church, the fact of the matter is that following Jesus is terrifying at times. Like following the call of God in your life and following the things that you know that he's called you and asked you and commanded you to do can be a terrifying endeavor. Like every time you go and you step out in faith and you share the gospel with someone, like you're putting yourself on the line and like it's a, it's a terrifying endeavor. Like every time that you go and you take a new step of faith, like it, it's a scary kind of thing. Every time you decide to invest a lot of money and go overseas on a mission trip or you sell everything that you have and you give your entire life to the mission field or you start to think about your workplace in a different way or you start to engage a family member that you know needs to understand Jesus a little bit better, like that is a terrifying endeavor. I love the way that um, my youth pastor used to say it a long time ago. He said that that's the call of God upon your life. He says, in fact, if you've been following him for a long time and you've never been terrified by what he's called you to do, then you might not actually be following Jesus. Because at some point in time, like following him demands that at some point you have to overcome your fear. And it's exactly what we're seeing here in Jeremiah. The call of God comes to him and it's a terrifying call. I want you to be a prophet to the nations, not just to the prophet of Israel, not just to the people of Israel. I want you to go to a people that are going to be hostile to the things that I'm wanting you to say. I want you to go and to live a homeless life uh, that's always going to be on the go, that's not going to be full of comfort and things like that. I want you to go and do these things, and it's a terrifying endeavor for, um, for Jeremiah to walk in. However, in the middle of this place, God is going to meet him in the middle of this fear, and he's going to provide a couple promises that are going to help alleviate this fear. The first thing that he's going to say is, uh, don't be afraid, Jeremiah, because I've called you and I've given you my purpose. Don't be afraid, Jeremiah, because I've called you and I've given you my purpose. That's what he's going to say essentially here in verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, Jeremiah. Like, and before you were born, I consecrated you and I have appointed you and called you to be a prophet to the nations. In other words, church, like in other words, we're playing kickball and I chose you to be in my team. Like, I wanted a third baseman and I made you to be a third baseman. Like, I, I needed a pitcher, and I made you to be a pitcher, and I needed some cheerleaders over here, and I made you to be a cheerleader, and I needed a coach, and I made you to be a coach. That's what he's saying here to Jeremiah. 
Like the psalmist is going to be carrying on the same theme uh, all over the place. Psalm 139, he's going to say, For you formed my inward parts, O God. You wove me in my mother's womb. I'll give thanks to you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not even one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand and the sea. In other words, church, like there's nothing random about the way that God created us. Like there's nothing generic about his creation of humanity and his creation of you and me. There's nothing random about the way that he did it. You were fearfully and wonderfully made by God. You were skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. All of the days of our life have been ordained even before they came about. Like Paul's going to be saying the exact same thing in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 2, he's going to say one of the most famous verses that we, that we have is, uh, it is by God's grace that we are saved through faith, that not of ourselves, that is a free gift of God so that no man can boast. In other words, he's very, very clear at this instance. He's saying salvation is a gift that God has given to you um, irregardless of your works. You're not bringing anything to the table. You're not bringing your goodness, your awesomeness, your great morality, your perfect church attendance, this, that, and the other, your ability to conquer your addictions and things of that nature. Salvation is a gift that is given to you by God's grace, and it's received through faith. However, the very next verse that he's going to say here in verse 10 is he's going to say, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of doing good works, which he created in advance for us to be able to walk in. In other words, like salvation has nothing to do with the things that you bring to the table. Uh, however, we are his workmanship. We have been created on purpose and for a purpose, meaning he thought about us. He planned us out. He created us with intention for the purpose of doing good works, which he's already prepared in advance for us to walk in. In other words, church, the purposes of God are not just for a select few, and the calling of God is not only unique to Jeremiah. This is something that is given to every single one of us. There's nothing generic about the way that he created humanity or nothing generic about the way that he created you. He created us and he called us on purpose. And he's saying, I've called you to be a prophet to the nations. I've made you to be a third baseman, you to be a pitcher, you to be a catcher, you to be a coach, you to be the crowd, you to be every, this, that, and the other. I've created you on purpose. So here's the question. So how do we discover the purpose that he's created us for? That's obviously the next question that we've got to ask, right? Like, Okay, how do we know like, what he's called us to? And we see this from the very beginning of time. Like From the very beginning of time, even in creation, we are seeing the purpose of God begin to play out. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Uh, the first five days of creation have come about. Uh, every day has happened. God creates something, and then immediately he declares that that thing that he just created is actually good. We get to mankind in verse 26, and things are different. He's going to say, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Then God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. So what we're seeing from the very beginning is in the very beginning, like God created us different from everything else that he created. We're not like the animals. We're not like the sun, moon, and the stars, or the trees, or the land, or anything else. He created us different, and he created us like, uh, meaning we bear his likeness. He created us in his image, bearing his likeness. We are not the same as God. 
We are very, very different. We bear his likeness, not his sameness. We do not have the possibility of becoming gods, right? Like we are not similar in those kinds of things. We bear his likeness, meaning we are creative because God is also creative. Like we are spiritual because God is spirit. Like we are intelligent because God is intelligent. We are moral because God is perfectly holy and God is perfectly just. We are relational because God is triune. He has always existed in perfect community with himself as the eternal, uh, self-existent triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so that's just a tiny bit of what we're talking about here when we talk about how uh, we've been made in the image of God. But from the very beginning, this means at least two different things. Number one, um, every single man, woman, and child has been given inherent dignity and value as an image bearer of God, uh, number one, first and foremost. But number two, like we were designed uniquely with an ability to be able to reflect him and glorify God well. What we're seeing in the very beginning, like he made us different from everything else in this way that you and I have the innate ability to be able to reflect him or glorify God in a really well manner. Jeremiah's going to say the same thing, by the way. Like Jeremiah's going to say this in chapter 13. Um, he's going to say this, for as a belt is bound around the waist, he's prophesying and he's speaking on behalf of God here to the nation of Israel. Here's what he says, for as a belt is bound around the waist. So I bound all the people of Israel and all the people of Judah to me, declares the Lord. Why? To be my people for my renown and my praise and my honor, but they have not listened. In other words, the reason that God uh, brought in the nation of Israel and the people of, uh, of Israel and brought them into covenant relationship with himself is that they would be a people that exists for his own renown and for his own glory. Like he's going to say the same thing um, in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul's going to say this. He has predestined us into adoption as sons to the praise of the glory of his grace, verse 6. Verse 12, like we've been claimed as God's own possession to the praise of his own glory. Verse 14, like we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit to the praise of his own glory. Uh, But what we're seeing from beginning to end, bottom line, church, is like God from the very beginning is always acting on behalf of his own glory. Like that is his purposes from the very beginning of time. He is always acting on behalf of his own glory. And the reason that that's not just completely narcissistic and and hypocritical for him to be able to do when we cannot do the exact same thing is really two reasons. Number one, he's actually worthy of receiving that glory. So the reason you and I cannot pursue our own glory, the reason our president cannot pursue his own glory, the reason the pope should not be able to pursue his own glory is because we are not actually worthy of receiving that kind of glory. I did not speak in the worlds were not created. Like, I, I, like, I'm not perfectly holy and just. I'm not the, the perfect embodiment of love. I'm not infinitely wise and all of those things. So very, very simply, he alone is actually worthy of receiving that kind of glory. But beyond that, like, number two, like, our good is wrapped up in God's glory. Church, like, our good is wrapped up in God's glory. And that's, look at, again, Ephesians chapter 1, what God does in order to receive glory. Chapter 1, like, he predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters to the praise of his glory. Like he claimed us as God's own possession to the praise of God's glory. He sealed us with the Holy Spirit to the praise of his glory. Jeremiah with the nation of Israel, he brought us into a covenant relationship. I'm going to bless you to be a blessing uh, for the praise of his own glory. That's what he is doing uh, to get his own glory. So when God is glorified, like people aren't oppressed, they're set free. Like when God is actually glorified, like grace abounds and life is actually found, right? Like when God is glorified, like people uh, are dignified and people have reason to hope in church that makes all the difference in the world. So the pursuit of his glory is actually also 
for our own good. And so the Westminster Catechism, which is one of the greatest statements of faith that the church has, even to this day, they, they put it like this. They say that the chief purpose of all mankind is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so when God reminds Jeremiah that he thoughtfully and uniquely and purposefully made him and, 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 and knit him together in his mother's womb, and when Paul reminds us of the exact same thing, and when the psalmist comes and he reminds us of the exact same thing, like, we know that however that plays out vocationally for you and me, like whether you're a third baseman or a shortstop or you play pitcher or catcher or you're a teacher or a salesman or a lawyer or a doctor or even a vocational minister or a vocational missionary or, 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 uh, or anything else, like we know that our purpose is not defined by a title, a, a paycheck, or even a relationship status or anything like that. Our purpose is defined by the God who made us and gave us his divine purposes. Saw a great example of this this past week. Um, I was reading, a, I love sports, you kind of know that about me, and I uh, try to limit the sports analogies and stories all the time, but I don't know if you've followed this, this past year, what God is kind of doing on the Philadelphia Eagles team, just massive revival, um, largely through their quarterback, Carson Wentz, and um, maybe if you don't know him, last year he was the second pick in the NFL draft, and this year he's just exploded on the scene, had an incredible year. Church, like, this pains me telling a story about the Philadelphia Eagles, by the way, but uh, to God be the glory. So um, <laughs> so I, it's been an incredible year. I think that the, the stories are that they baptized about five or six players uh, just this season alone, and we're talking like right before game time. There's pictures and Instagram photos and they're baptizing players in the, in the team pool before a game. And uh, the story is just all about Carson Wentz kind of leading the way and his testimony upon this team. And uh, I love how Carson describes how he thinks about his own job. He knows that he's one of the most, most famous and powerful people really in the country as a leader of this team and makes millions of dollars and stuff. But here's what he says. He says, faith to me is the number one thing in my life. If Jesus is not in it, I don't even want to be a part of it, not even football. And the article goes on and just talks about how Bible studies are common throughout the National Football League, but what distinguishes the Eagles group is the players' uncompromising pursuit of biblical truth, deep theology, genuine accountability, and gospel-fueled charity. They're not interested in the status quo spiritually. And George, that's kind of what we're talking about. Like, they get it. They get that my, my purpose is not defined by my title or even my position on this team. My purpose is not defined by my the number of zeros on this paycheck or the lack of zeros that may be on my paycheck this time of year. Like my purpose is is defined by the God who created me intently and gave me his divine purpose. And I just wonder if some of us need to be reminded of that this morning. Like businessman, like your purpose is bigger than the job that you're doing. It may involve the job that you're doing. It does involve the job that you're doing, but it is bigger than the job that we're called to. It's bigger than the title. It's bigger than the paycheck. And moms and dads, like your purpose is bigger than the diapers that you're changing and the tears that you're wiping up. Like your purpose is so much bigger than that. A single person, I need you to hear me on this, like your purpose is not defined by your relationship status. Your purpose is defined by the God who made you, created you on purpose and has given you his divine purpose. And I just wonder if anybody needs to be reminded of that simple fact this morning. The second thing that he says is really on par with um, the major, major, major theme that we've been running into over and over again in the Old Testament. And this is probably the eighth time that I've kind of gone through this um, this past semester alone. But here's the second thing he says. He says, don't be afraid because I'm going to be with you and I'm going to deliver you. Have we heard this before? We kind of, I hope that... uh, (laughs) 
always get insecure anytime you're repeating things a whole lot, but like I'm going through the big story of scripture and it seems like every single movement, every single chunk, there are these massive, massive reminders that no matter what I've called you to, like I'm going to be with you in the entire thing. And not only that, but I'm going to actually deliver you in the middle of it all. And even though this may be the eighth or the 10th time that we've heard this this past semester, like we need to believe that like the thing that God has called you to, you're not going at it alone. Like, I'm going to be with you, and not only that, but I'm going to be with you in such a way that I'm going to deliver you through that. That's what he says here in verse 7. But the Lord said to me, do not say that I am a youth. In other words, stop making excuses here. Like, because everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Verse 8. Then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, behold, I've actually put my words in your mouth. I was thinking about it this past week, and... um. I love this story. Like back in seminary, I had a friend, and for the sake of the story, I'm just going to call him Billy. Um, I don't know if he wants a story out there or not, but he was a, he was a friend of mine, and we were in we were in a group together. And just loved this guy wholeheartedly. He was a very nervous person, and he was very anxious about a lot of different things. Uh, very quiet, kept to himself, not very socially confident, and things like that. But I, I loved this guy a whole lot. We were we became very good friends during our time there. Uh, finally, the last semester we were there, I was in a we were in a preaching class together. And uh, he would happen to be in my class, and of course, uh, it was his time to come and preach. And so the way that they do this is the most terrifying thing that you guys can imagine. You're in a small classroom, probably 12 to 15 students, and you get up there and you preach to a small classroom, and everybody's got a grade sheet, and they're like critiquing your whole message and stuff. Nobody's listening, and like the, you're not, they're not trying to be changed or anything. They're just telling you what, what you did wrong. And so it's a terrifying thing. And so this is his day to, to go and to preach. And uh, the dude is like sweating through his shirt. Like he's just, he is freaking out. He can't talk to me. Uh, he's just absolutely panicking as he gets up there to preach. And he gets up there and he preaches. And I'm not kidding you. As soon as he gets up there and he opens up his mouth, it's like a brand new person is up there on the stage. Like he just starts preaching the word of God like with boldness, with confidence, and with this power that is just unmatched like anything else. I mean, our entire class, we sat there and we were just going, who, who, who is this guy? Like, who is this Billy? Like, he was hilarious, and it was just powerful. And, like, we all were like, I'm, coming, I'm getting saved again. We were going to the front of the, the class. It's like, yes, whatever. I, it was just one of those moments. And um, interesting fact, like, he would go on to win the preaching award for our class that whole semester at DTS, this guy. And the reason I love that story is because it's exactly what God is telling Jeremiah here. He's like, hey, Jeremiah's terrified. He's insecure. Like, who am I? I'm young. Like, I don't even know how to speak well. And God, what he says here is this, he says, don't be afraid for I'm with you to deliver you. Behold, I've actually put my words in your mouth. Are you, are you hearing me, church? Like, this is not about your natural ability. This is not about what you naturally bring to the table. This is not about like what you, how great and awesome you are. Like, don't be afraid. I'm going to be with you and I'm going to deliver you. And then he touches his tongue and he puts his words in his mouth. Like, that needs to be inspiring an incredible amount of confidence in every single one of us, church. Like, when you step out in faith and you follow the call of God on your life, meaning you have prayerfully discerned these specific things that you believe that God has put in your personality, in your background, in your job, in your day-to-day life, these specific things that God has called you to do, you do not have to be afraid uh, because you are not going to be doing it alone. Paul is going to be saying the same things. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, one of my favorite verses I quote around here all the time. But here's what he says. He says, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom when I preached the testimony of God. In other words, I'm not coming here in my great personality and in the, in the, in the accordance of my own strength. Like I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. I was sweating through my shirt, essentially. 
Like, so my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Holy Spirit and his power, so that your faith may not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the very power of God. You ever heard me pray that before? I, I, that is just the verse that has just wrecked my life. God, let my preaching, let my, the, whatever it is that you've called me to do, would it not be in persuasive words of human wisdom, but a demonstration of your Holy Spirit and your power that our faith, my faith, our faith may not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the very power of God. In other words, the Apostle Paul and all of his brilliance and in all of his wisdom recognizes that he can't go and do this whole thing alone. And the beauty of the gospel is that he's not going to do it alone. He promises, I'm going to be with you, and if I'm with you, I'm going to be there to deliver you. Like, it's the exact same thing with Moses. Like, Moses has one legitimate excuse after another for why he should be able to bail on the mission of God. Like, in Exodus chapter 2, he murders a man, right? Like, the amount of shame and the, and the amount of, uh, that comes from that, like, he murders a man, and the Israelites have rejected him because he's bailed on the Israelites, and, and then, you know, they're, they're all upset about that. On top of that, he's got a major speech impediment. Uh, chapter 4 verse 10 but lord here's what he says i've never been eloquent neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant i'm slow of speech and tongue in other words it's exactly like jeremiah who am i god like i don't even speak well and i'm and i'm really really young he's terrified and you remember how god responds to him i I love this all he says is moses who gave human beings their mouths who makes the deaf who, who makes them deaf or mute who gives them sight or makes them blind is it not i the lord like he does the exact same thing in chapter 3. Moses says, okay, Lord, who am I? Who am I to go before Pharaoh? Like, who am I? Like, seriously, I'm nobody to go before Pharaoh. And God doesn't even answer the question. All he says is, Moses, I'm going to be with you. Who am I, oh God? No, 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 you don't understand. Like, I'm going to be with you. No, no, but God, who am I? Like, what have you given me? What gifts and abilities do I have? Like, what natural charisma do I have to go before Pharaoh? Well, no, 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 Moses, you don't understand it because I'm going to be with you. But, but God, like, I don't have power. Like, people don't respect me. People don't look up to me. Like, I've got these past moral failures, and he's going, but Moses, what you don't understand is I'm going to be with you, and if I'm with you, I'm also going to, be del- I'm also going to deliver you. So you need to stop making excuses because this is not about you and what you bring to the table. This is about me and what I want to do and what I can and will do through you. It's why he says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, Paul's going to say, not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world in order to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world in order to shame the strong. In other words, he does not need you to be great because he already is. And some of us need to know that because we, 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 we're sitting here and we're believing things like I really have nothing big to bring to the table. I don't have a whole lot to offer. And the beauty of what we're talking about is that is okay because God knows how to take a tiny, tiny bit and multiply it in order to feed thousands. Like Acts chapter 9, Saul is the most hateful persecutor of the church in the world and God transforms him and uses him to write half of the New Testament and to be the most effective missionary that the church has ever known. 1 Corinthians 3, 6, he's going to say things like, I planted the seed, Apollos came and, and watered it. In other words, church, like we were faithful with the things that God has called us to do. I planted the seed, I went out there and I spoke and I walked by faith. Apollos did the same thing. He came along and he watered it. But here it is. It was God who caused it to grow. Acts chapter 4, Holy Spirit comes on the church in Pentecost. And like days before, they're huddled in a room and they're terrified and and afraid for their life. And Peter, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes down and comes upon them. And Peter preaches the most simple gospel message you've ever heard in your life. And literally thousands come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that day. Like John chapter 20, God uses Mary Magdalene, previously demon-possessed Mary Magdalene, to be the first um, 
witness, eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus Christ. John chapter 11, like Lazarus is dead and God is able to raise the dead church. That is what God does. He uses the weak things of the world in order to shame the strong. And some of us need to hear that because we're sitting there going, Lord, who in the world am I to be useful to you? Like, why, what do I have to bring to the table? I'm not anybody. Nobody knows my name. Nobody knows my skills. I don't have this, I don't have this ability to speak. I don't have these, these great things I can do with my, with my hands. And like, nobody's going to listen to me. And he's saying, that's okay. I know everything about you because I knit you together in your mother's womb. And I created you for a purpose. And here's the thing. I'm going to actually be with you the entire time. And if I'm with you, I will deliver you. The only thing you need to focus on is walking obediently according to your call. And that's it. And here's Jeremiah, and he's confronted with his call upon his life. Jeremiah, I want you to be a prophet, not just to Israel, but also to the nations. And he's terrified about what God wants him to do. And so he just simply says, don't be afraid, because I knew you while you were in your mother's womb. I set you apart, and I numbered the hairs upon your head. Like, I gave you purpose, and I even gave you my purpose. I even gave you specific purpose. You were actually made for these things that I've called you to do. So do not be afraid because I will be with you and I will deliver you. And then the Lord touches his mouth and actually puts his words into his mouth. I'm going to end with this. I love um, Steve Jobs' testimony and story has been kind of all around culture for the past few years. There's a lot of different biographies written about him and a few different movies. Um, kind of got fascinated by a story recently. You guys remember Steve's story, right? Have you seen the movies or the biographies? Uh, anybody watched or read those things? Nah? Okay, there's a, there's a number. Um, fascinating character. We know this about a story. Like in the late 70s and the early 80s, uh, there was no market for personal computers. <laughs> I mean, Jobs and, and Wozniak, they created this, this, this personal computer and Nobody wanted it. They tried to sell it to Atari. They tried to sell it to Hewitt Packer. And like literally people were going, okay, there's, people do not need a computer in their home. And of course they had this vision. And so they, sell, they sold what they had. Like Jobs sold his Volkswagen and Wozniak sold his calculator, which was very, very expensive in the day. They had about $1,300 and they started um, Apple computers. Um, it was named after a summer that Steve Jobs had when he was working in an orchard. And it was a very happy summer for him. And he was not a very happy person. But he remembered that, and so he called the company Apple. Anyway, it's not very long before um, they start building these computers that he realizes, hey, I'm going to need someone bigger and better than me to be able to manage this organization if we ever want to take this thing global. And so immediately he starts um, recruiting a man by the name of John Scully. I don't know if you guys remember this as part of the story, but John Scully is the current president. He was the current president of uh, Pepsi. And uh, he's going, I want this guy. He's shooting high, right? I want this guy to run our organization and, the, and to manage the whole entity. And so he starts recruiting John Scully. And um, it's not a shocker that uh, Scully turned him down initially. I mean, the dude's making uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. He's worth so much money. And he's working for Pepsi. They're solid. They're, they're established at all these different things. And, of course, these are Wozniak and Jobs are, are working out of a garage. And, I mean, there's no vision for this, for this business. So the first time, he just immediately turns him down. He says, I've got no interest in leaving Pepsi. Jobs keeps going after it. The second time, he sits him down, and he pitches his vision. And, of course, um, the guy shuts him down again. And the third time, he comes back, and he says, I'm going to give this one more shot. And he sits down with John Scully. And in the most passionate of, of, uh, attempt possible to, um, to communicate his vision, he sits him down, and he asks him this question, um, which makes all the difference in the world. And I think it's the question that God wants us to wrestle with today. Here's all he says. He says, John, do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugar water? Or do you want a chance to change the world? Isn't that a good question? 
Do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugar water? Do you want a chance to change the world? That's all it took to get John on the team. He thought about it, and he said, that's exactly right, and he bought into the vision. And I love that story because this is very, very similar to the question that's on the table for every single one of us today. Church, like, do you want to spend the rest of your life doing your own thing, or do you want to actually be used by God to help change the world? It's the question that's on the table for us. 2018, do you want to spend the rest of your life, do you want to spend the rest of your year doing your own thing, going through the rhythms of your life, checking off the boxes of our routines, or do you want to actually be used by God to help change the world? Church, the reality is that he knew you while you were in your mother's womb. Like he numbered the hairs upon your head. He set you apart from birth. He has given you purpose. He has given you specific purpose. He has given you his divine purpose specific things that you are intended to do for the glory of his name that literally have the capacity to change someone's world forever. Encouragement today is just simply do not be afraid because no more excuses because he has promised to be with you and he promises to to deliver you when you walk by faith in accordance with the call upon your life.